Thanks, Bill, and welcome again, everyone. So great to be together with you. Great that we're able to worship. Aren't you glad you live in Southern California? Amen. Yes, this is, this is wonderful. So glad that you're here. And uh, just ask, uh, join with me to pray. Let's ask for God's blessing on his word to prepare our hearts. Father in heaven, we do open wide our hearts and uh, pray that you would fill us, fill us up, Lord, with your word, uh, this wonderful words of life, Lord, that you've put down in this book that we treasure, that your spirit and your life uh, have produced this, and it is like medicine and food for our souls. So we're hungry today, and uh, so we open wide our hearts, prepare our hearts to receive these words, Lord, give grace to preach, grace to read, grace to receive and hear and do what you've called us to do in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I've been praying for you all. I hope you are doing well. Uh, it is no secret that we live in challenging times, uh, difficult, difficult times. Um, Recently, the, uh, the numbers for the coronavirus have hit all-time highs with cases, hospitalizations, hospitals hitting capacities, restrictions that governments have imposed to try and slow this spread have been crippling the economy as we watch more and more businesses close their doors, going out of business. We see unemployment numbers going up as well. And all of this adding to just the, the struggles of all of our mental health. I think we're all feeling challenged in some way in differing degrees to how this is affecting us. It's hard to imagine as well the political strife to be more than it is. I don't know if there, there's always been political strife, but it certainly feels, of course, we're right in the middle of it, uh, that it couldn't be any greater disputed election the left and the right barely speaking to each other, seemingly unable to even consider one another human beings at this point, let alone citizens of the same country. And of course the church, we've not been immune to all of this, the strife, the division, mask on, mask off groups, views, some fearful of getting sick, others angry about government restrictions, everyone struggling with the effect on our souls of the isolation, the lack of fellowship, it's been a difficult, difficult time. I just want you to know that back in March when it became clear that we needed to alter meetings and cooperate with, with this effort, I had in my mind a great revival, how God was going to use this to unite the church, reinvigorate the church, deepen our faith, and add to the church. And that revival was supposed to take place about six months ago. So uh, just so you know, this is not going according to my plan, but it is going according to God's. Our text this afternoon is Jeremiah chapter 24. So if you have a Bible, I'd like you to turn there. We're going to read that chapter together. And in this chapter, I believe God has a message for us. I know that he does. It is a two-sided message that goes like this. Even if times are bad, our future can be good. And even if times are good, our future can be bad. There's two sides. In other words, folks, it's not our present circumstances that determine our future. It is the Lord 
who determines our future. This passage addresses two groups of people and brings an encouragement to one and a warning to the other. Let's read the passage together. I'm reading from Jeremiah chapter 24 from the ESV. After Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had taken into exile from Jerusalem, Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, together with the officials of Judah, the craftsmen and the metal workers, and had brought them to Babylon, the Lord showed me this vision. Behold, two baskets of figs placed before the temple of the Lord. One basket had very good figs, like first ripe figs, but the other basket had very bad figs, so bad they could not be eaten. And the Lord said to me, what do you see, Jeremiah? And I said, figs, the good figs, very good, and the bad figs, very bad, so bad that they cannot be eaten. Then the word of the Lord came to me, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, like these good figs, so I will regard as good the exiles from Judah, whom I have sent away from this place to the land of the Chaldeans. I will set my eyes on them for good, and I will bring them back to this land. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not pluck them up. I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. But thus says the Lord, like the bad figs that are so bad they cannot be eaten, so will I treat Zedekiah, the king of Judah, his officials, the remnants of Jerusalem who remain in this land, and those who dwell in the land of Egypt. I will make them a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth, to be a reproach, a byword, a taunt, and a curse in all the places where I shall drive them. And I will send sword, famine, and pestilence upon them until they shall be utterly destroyed from the land that I gave them and their fathers. To unpack this chapter for you, I just want to lay out a few questions. Uh, whenever you're trying to understand something, we always can just get a, get a hand from some simple friends, who, when, what, where, and how. And so I'd just like to pose a few questions to unpack this. When was this vision given? Where was it given? And what did it contain? And as we unpack and answer those questions, I think the vision will become clear what the Lord has to say. So when did this vision come? Because timing is everything. Timing is everything, and with this came at a certain time, and it came after what we know as the first deportation. Okay, so what's happening here is Babylon has come into prominence. They are the major world power. They have come, been coming against the people of Judah. They've been laying a siege against them, and they actually came in, and they grabbed hold of 10,000 people and took them out and took them captive and deported them, brought them back into Babylon. They took the cream of the crop, all the best, the smartest and the best, the most talented, the king and his household, all the leaders, 10,000 brought out of Judah and into Babylon. Babylon was, from if you recall back in chapter 1, they were the boiling pot from the north. The anger of the Lord, the wrath of God that was being poured out against these people, it was this nation and the judgment of God was coming against Judah because of their idolatry, their waywardness. They forsook the Lord. 
They did not consider the Lord. They went all different ways. And so this judgment was being promised. Repentance was being called for. They refused to repent. And now the judgment of God was beginning to unfold. So Judah is now two groups of people. We have 10,000 deported now in Babylon, and we have the rest of the nation back home, residents in Judah. To the exiles in Babylon, to be in the group of the 10,000, they must have felt the pain of God's judgment. Their lives had been totally turned upside down. They had lost everything. They were taken from their homes. They were no longer living in their land, in their country, and they were living now in a strange land, a pagan land. They had lost everything of value, forced to live in a place not of their choosing, not of their desires, but there they were by force. As far as you could see, they had no future. They had no hope. It appeared they were the worst off. To the residents in Judah, those that were not taken captive, those that were still around Jerusalem and in the land of Judah, well, it's unlikely that life was great for them. These were troubling times all the way around. Nevertheless, it certainly would have been viewed as the better place to be. Can you imagine if we were attacked and a portion of our population was taken away, and if we were still here, you'd kind of like wipe your brow, say, whew, okay, uh, didn't like it, but better them than me. I'm glad we're still here. They certainly would have appeared and come across as the better off between the two groups. They still had their homes. They still lived in their own country. And even though the temple had been sacked and taken, all the gold has been taken out of it, the temple was still there. So they were near God, so to speak. They may have felt like they dodged a major bullet. They saw the judgment of God come and it didn't affect them like it did affect the 10,000 that were taken away. And the vision comes right at this time and tells them precisely the opposite of how things appeared. So when did the vision come? Answer the question when. It came at a time when a group of exiles had lost all sense of hope and when a group of residents were living with a sense of false hope. One group without hope, another group with false hope. And here comes the vision to reveal what God is saying and what is actually going on. God knows when to speak. He knows when we face difficult times. He knows when to speak up. He knows when to bring a word of encouragement and inspiration to us. He knows our need. He also knows that when times are good, when things are not as bad as they could be, and we might be feeling comfortable, things are okay, things are good. He speaks there as well with warning. When we tend to put our security in present circumstances and think, oh, it's not so bad. Oh, we're doing okay. Where is your trust? And the Lord speaks into that group, group as well. Our circumstances in life do not determine our future. The Lord does. The circumstances that you're in right now, whether they are bad or whether they are good, your circumstances do not determine your future. Your future is in the hands of the Lord. He determines our future. So that's when this vision came. When there was a group 
discouraged and without hope, and another group possibly encouraged and living in false hope. Second question, where? Where did this vision come? Now, when visions come to prophets, maybe nine times out of ten, it doesn't make any difference where it took place. But with this one, it does. It took place before the temple of the Lord. It came at a certain time, and it came at a certain place, right in front of the temple. The temple represented God's presence to his people. This temple, whether it was the tabernacle in the wilderness or the temple here in this point in history in Jerusalem, this represented God. It represented God's presence. It represented that God was with them. It was the temple and the fact that God was with them. This is what made these people these people. This was their identity, that the Lord was with them. I've been reading a fascinating book recently about race in the Bible and just getting a little surprised as some scholars are looking and saying, uh, this group that we're talking about here were quite a mixed group. We tend to think that they were so ethnically unified, ethnically one. They were not. It was a very mixed group. The only thing that marked the people of God was their faith was the fact that God was with them. That's what unified them, and praise God, that's what the church is today. It matters not your ethnic background, your gender, none of these things. What unifies us, what makes us the people of God is the fact that we have the Lord, that we're the Lord's, and it was so back in Jerusalem as well. This is what identified them as the people of God. So the temple was very, very significant. It was supposed to be front and center. The problem at this point in history was in the hearts of the people. It was anything but front and center. They had forsaken the Lord. So the presence of God was not meaningful to them. The temple was not. And so here comes God to bring a word. And where does he bring it? On the doorstep of the temple itself causing everyone's attention to go back towards the Lord. Jeremiah's entire ministry, the entire book of Jeremiah that we've been studying through, is all about these people forsaking the Lord and calling them back. The main theme in the book is return, come back. You've you've got to come back to the Lord. You've walked away from him, and the call of God is to return. But the temple the covenant, God's presence, these things were no longer center stage in the hearts of these people. They had put the Lord on the shelf along with any and every other God they came in contact with. He was one choice among many. It didn't matter what you chose. You could choose them all. Sounds a little bit like society today, does it not? But the Lord is not one God among many. He is the Lord. I love a little quote from John Frame, one of my favorite little statements. There's one thing that we need to know about God. It's that he's the Lord. The Lord over all, creator of all things. He's the one. And these people had lost that. Jeremiah had been warning them, calling them to repentance or face God's judgment. And they had refused. So where did this vision take place? 
in front of the very place that represented who they were supposed to be as a people, the very one they had forsaken, and the reason why they were facing the troubles that they were facing. The temple was also a source of divine perspective and divine edict. This was the place that God spoke to them from. If you wanted to know something, if you needed guidance, if you needed help, if you wanted to understand the truth, the idea was you would go to the temple and you would seek the Lord. And the Lord would answer us, answer you, when you sought the Lord in his temple. At a time when one group faced extreme difficulty and lacked hope, while the other was spared the difficulty and lived with false hope, God spoke from his temple. Folks, this is important because feelings and circumstances can be deceiving. Listen, your feelings and your circumstances can be valuable tools in God's hand. Sometimes you have a sense about something, you feel something, and it certainly could be that you're feeling that for a reason, and it becomes something that leads you, opens your eyes, something that God uses. Sometimes circumstances can be used of God in your life, open doors, closed doors. These things can affirm and confirm the Lord's leading in our lives, sometimes. But they can just as easily be deceptive and lead us astray. Feelings and circumstances can be used, but feelings and circumstances are not ultimate. The word of the Lord is ultimate. So while these can be tools and can be useful, they are always need to be subject to the word of the Lord. And here we had two groups of people with a set of circumstances and a set of feelings, and the Lord's word comes into and above and circumvents and overrides and clarifies for both. The vision took place in a location that was to remind them of who they were as a people and who it was in their future. It was the word of the Lord that was going to determine their future, not their circumstances and not their feelings. Third question, what? What was in the baskets? And we read it. They were full of figs. Okay, some Bible facts about figs. A fruit that takes years to cultivate, like our avocados, okay? You buy an avocado tree, you got to wait a few years, maybe five years before that thing starts producing anything. Same thing with figs. Long time to cultivate before the fruit becomes sweet, before it bears fruit, before you can enjoy that harvest. Figs also, in the Bible really used to sort of represent a sense of well-being and prosperity. In Micah chapter 4, you might recall this, this prophecy where Micah is prophesying about future peace. This is the one about when, when people beat their swords into plowshares, and there'll be no more war. And with that prophecy, he says, But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. In other words, if you've got a vine and a fig tree, it's kind of like saying, yeah, i got a nice little house with a white picket fence and a two-stall garage, which is kind of a way of saying in America, I've arrived. We're there. Life is good. We have what we need. 
I've got an arrangement in my life. It's comfortable. We're still working, but the needs are met. We're at a place of well-being. And so that, that phrase, if you can sit under your vine and your fig tree, you're in a good place. You're a place of well-being, a place of peace. Now, these figs represented these two groups of people, the exiles and the ones that remain. It talks about the figs being good in one basket and bad in the other. Now, no doubt the exiles felt like, uh, yeah, we're feeling very cursed right now. We must be the bad figs. No one can eat these figs. These are rotten. These are, these are bad to the core. That's us. We're away from the temple. We're away from the Lord. We're away from our homeland. We're deported into this pagan place. We don't know the language. We don't know the people. Everything about our lives is bad. We must be those rotten figs. Those that remain must have felt somewhat blessed and could have concluded we must be the good figs. We were spared, still in the homeland, not deported, not taken away as slaves, still have the temple here intact. But God interrupts all these thoughts, all these perceptions, and brings this word and tells them precisely the opposite. The exiles happen to be the good figs. And the ones that remain are the bad ones. Now, when you first read this, it kind of comes across like there's some good people over here in Babylon and some bad people that stayed back in Judah. But the, the good and the bad is, is not actually referring to the people themselves. If you've been tracking with this story, uh, they're all bad. Everyone was bad. There weren't some good people that God pulled out and says, hey, you're looking a little better than the rest. Let me separate you out. No, they had all rejected the Lord. They had all gone their own way. They were all filled up with idolatry. None of them turned to repent and returned to the Lord. So the, the goodness and the badness of the figs is not saying good people, bad people. The goodness and the badness here is talking about God's plans for them. He has good plans for one group and bad plans for the other. So while the figs represent the people, the goodness and the badness is really referring to their future. Not their moral state or were these ethical people, were they nice people, were they good people? No, we've got, we've got a clear message in Jeremiah. They were all bad and in need of God's grace. But to those that were carried off into exile, he had good plans. He spoke words of encouragement to the discouraged and the ones that felt certainly without hope. He said, I will regard as good or for good. These are the ones I'm going to acknowledge and I'm going to show kindness towards these people. We read this. I will set my eyes on them for good and I will bring them back to this land and I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not pluck them up. The ones that were plucked up, transplanted, these are the ones. God speaks over them. You, I mean for good. You, I have plans for good. The wonderful, familiar verse uh, 11 of chapter 29. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Hear this promise when times are difficult. He says this promise to people that were taken captive, enslaved in Babylon. Life was the worst. And yet God speaks to them. 
I have good plans in store for you. Now, to those who remained, he had bad plans for them. To the ones feeling secure, sitting with a sense of false hope, here he makes these promises to make them a horror to all the nations, a reproach, byword, a taunt, a curse. They get sword, famine, pestilence until they are utterly destroyed. You see, the exiles faced a judgment that would lead to their salvation. But the residents faced a judgment that would lead to their destruction. The message was a two-sided coin. Now you understand what was going on in this. Let's sort of put on our gospel lens. Let's put on our New Testament eyes here and, and read into this. So uh, we don't apply what we shouldn't apply, but we understand what the Lord has for us. Folks, Christians live as exiles in this world. If you're here, a follower of Christ, you belong, you're a member of the church, people that God has saved and called to himself, you are declared, you are identified as an exile in this word, in this world. You're, you're, you're not home yet. This is not your final home. You've been, you've been temporarily placed in this world with a future that is very different than this life. First Peter 2.11, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wa wage war against your soul. Hebrews chapter 11, talking about people of faith, presses into this, this idea. These, those who live by faith, all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. The point is this, as Christians belonging to Christ, you and I can face difficult times and remain secure in our future hope. We can see difficulties, we can suffer loss, we can go through pandemics, we can go through changes in government, we can go through all sorts of things in this life and not lose our sense of security, not lose our sense of hope. God means for our good. And yet how many times we find ourselves, uh, life is not good right now. Life is bad. Life is a struggle. I can't see very much good. And yet the word of the Lord can speak, ah, but you, I have plans for good. For you, I have hope. For you, I have a good future in mind. So take heart. I have good plans for you. I will bring you back. I will give you a heart to know me. We can bear up through this season and through these difficulties. We can remain unified when the world around us is divided. We can trust God even when we think governments are being harmful to us. On one level, it matters not. Our identity, our future is secure. On the other side of the message, 
comes a warning when things are good. Listen to 1 Timothy chapter 6. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Two-sided message. Life is hard. You feel displaced, feeling the effects of being in exile, uncomfortable, suffering loss, suffering hardship. The word of the Lord comes. I have hope for you. I have a future for you. I have plans for you. Hold on. Don't give up. It's, it will get better. It will be better. Life is good. And let's be honest. Many of us are quite well. And to that, the Lord speaks a warning. What are you trusting in? What are you depending on? Are you saying, oh, life is good, I'm okay? Are we the, the fool that says, oh, a bumper crop, what will I do? Let me build more barns. Let me build more places to store all my goods. Let's buy a bigger house. Let's have more space. Is that what we depend upon? And the word of the Lord comes with a warning. Oh, be careful. When life is good, be careful where you put your trust because your circumstances do not determine your future. The Lord does. Your good feelings or your troubled feelings, they do not determine your future. The Lord does. The exiles had to come face to face with the judgment of God. But the Lord was with them and spoke a word saying that through this judgment will come your salvation. I will. I will bring you back. I will give you a new heart. I will draw you to myself. I will be your God. Now the gospel lens for us is such good news, such wonderful news. Because if you want to answer the question, okay, how can I be secure? How can I have a, a, a secure future? Whether life is good or life is not good, how do I secure my future? You too need to look to the judgment of God that leads to salvation. The good news is you and I do not experience that judgment of God, but he laid it on another. So he sends his son, Christ comes into the world, and he says, now I will take on myself that judgment of God. And so what are we called to do? We use these phrases, we say, look to Christ. And every time I say that, I wonder, oh, I hope that doesn't sound passe or bland. Look to Christ. What a flippant phrase. Oh, no, it's, it's everything. You, you, you look, you come face to face with a Savior 
dying on a cross, bearing our sins. It is the most life-transforming picture you could ever see. When you really look and you see and you realize what he has done for you and what he's done for me, you are beholding, you are looking at the judgment of God that leads to salvation. Which is why when Jesus said, look, put your trust in me, follow me, look to me. He said, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. Like Moses in the desert lifted up that bronze serpent and everyone who looked upon it was spared from the plague. A symbol of God's judgment looked upon which led to salvation. We look to the cross. We look to the Savior. We see God's solution for our problem. We see the salvation that comes through Christ that assures us a good, hopeful, promising future. You can have the worship team come on up as we close. It's difficult times. Tomorrow might be great times. Jeremiah chapter 24 tells us you know what? It really doesn't matter whether it's good times or bad times. Both require the Lord. You and I, we need to know the Lord. It doesn't matter how bad it is, your future can still be good. It doesn't matter how good it is, your future can still be bad. Unless you know the Lord. Let's stand together.